Well, I invite you to take that Bible, look over to John chapter 4 as we come back to the woman at the well. I've been away a couple weeks and one was on that trip and then a year ago I uh, told a guy I would come down and uh, do his university student conference at um, UC San Diego. And I got to tell you, it was the funniest thing because these are the, the church of these students, mostly in technology, the Lighthouse Bible Church, uh, probably about 90% Asian. And they did a little Bible game quiz as a competition. And those were some of the smartest people I've ever heard in my life. They were ans- ask, you know, answering stuff on binary code and light plasma. These were all part of the rally points for this competition. But they had been trying to get me for two, three years. And it just so happened that uh, we really needed to go to Italy and to Albania to navigate a couple of those things that those fell on the heels. But I'm thankful for Austin Duncan, for Andy Woodfield. I've heard tremendous response from their time in the pulpit. So I'm just so grateful. So John chapter 4, we've been studying the woman at the well. Let me pick up the text and I'll review a bit. But let me read our section this morning on 416 through 26. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is here and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There we have the reading of God's word. And we come back here. We looked at 4, 1 through 15 a couple weeks ago. And we come back to this wonderful account of Jesus and the woman at the well. And John, the apostle, is demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God. And we noted some weeks back that the key principle here in the woman at the well, as we call her appropriately, the key main principle is not the woman, but but Jesus. The focus here is on the person of Christ. And really, if there's a key verse, and I believe there is in the entire section here, it's it's there in chapter 4, In verse 26, when Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, as we come to this section here in 16 through 26, it interests me that as you just begin to read and reread the passage, that 10 of the 13 uses of worship in John's gospel are in this section alone. So he's going to use that word 13 different times, and 10 of them appear just in this section. And of course, as you come to chapter 4, verse 24, that is a monumental statement on God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and in truth. And so Jesus turns in this passage a sinner into a worshiper. You know, when you, when you look at the, the text of John, three different times he uses the word must. Remember back the first one in John chapter 3, look there. He used that word in 3.7 when he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, and there was the first one, you must be born again. In other words, it's an absolute necessity. If you look in chapter 3 and verse 14, he says it a second time, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so he must be lifted up out of necessity. And now here in 424, the third place, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. But when you think about that just phrase or that word, worship, um, worship is just simply uh, to attribute worth, if you will, to God's character. So God is majestic. God is holy. God is, a, is, a, is all of his attributes, if you will. And what we are to do in light of his character is to attribute worth to his character. In fact, the psalmist said in 29.2, ascribe to the Lord. Do you remember that phrase? The glory do his, what? Name. Ascribe to the Lord. It doesn't mean that we add anything to God, but it simply means that we acknowledge him for who he is and in this way glorify or honor him. So the Lord is seeking people, if you will, that would worship him, that would ascribe worth to him, to his character, to his name, to his attributes. And worship, of course, is not just what we do on Sunday. Worship is a way of life. So in this dialogue, at least in this section, our Lord is detailing for us the path to true worship. And in doing so, he wondrously reveals himself to this woman and to the world as the long-awaited Messiah. So what I want to do is look at this section here and at this path, if you will, to true worship through four different lenses that bring into focus what worship is all about, okay? What is worship all about? Now, before we dive in, you remember in the early part of this chapter, in verse 1, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And so in verse 3, he left for Judea and he departed again into Galilee. And we talked about that. He ended up going north. He was on his way into Galilee again. And there were three different ways, remember, that you can go. You can go to the coast, if you will, east. You could go that way. You'd have to go around a little bit, then up. You can go to the or it was my, the west, okay? You can go through a place called Perea, but if you really wanted to get to Galilee, you could go straight north, okay? That's how you would get there. But if you went straight north, remember, you had to go through Samaria. And there were a number of Jews in this day who didn't want to become unclean. So they passed Samaria all together. Now you'll know, look back in 4.4, that he had to pass through Samaria. And some people just take that geographically. He was going north and he had to go through that. I think more than just the geography there, I think there is a divine appointment that our Lord has in Samaria. Now remember we said that the Assyrians 
are, is that group of people when the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC. So I'm going to describe who the Samaritans are, excuse me. You remember at that point when Assyria came in and conquered that nation Israel, they deported some of the more prominent Jewish people away from this area and they put them in Babylon and then likewise they also brought other people over and they left the poor in that area of Samaria. And what happened over the time is as these foreigners came in and intermixed and intermingled and intermarried, if you will, with other people, they really formed um, a, a tribal race or a mix and they became known as the Samaritans. So a Samaritan was somebody who was half Jewish and half something else. And so the pure Jewish people hated the Samaritans. Remember, they didn't even want to get by them. They didn't want to speak with them. They didn't want to even use the utensils that they would use and so forth. There was a bitter hatred. And so Jesus, if you will, is on his way to Samaria. He stops at the well. Look at verse 7. It says, or verse 6, he was wearied from his journey. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Remember, we noted that it was shocking that Jesus would be speaking to a woman, that he would be speaking to a Samaritan woman. There are a number of scholars who I mentioned said this is not the normal time where a woman would come for water. They would often come for water later in the day. She comes at noon, and it could have been that she was embarrassed. Some believe who she was, so she came at a time when others wouldn't, she wouldn't be out there with other women, for they would have known who she was. And Jesus begins to engage her in that conversation. And Jesus said to her, look at verse 13. He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we noted there that our Lord is addressing eternal life that comes through the Holy Spirit. And when that miracle of salvation takes place and planted into your soul, it will never leave you thirsting for something more than Jesus Christ. Once you've tasted of that water, and even as we sang today, I thought, that's the thought. You're just glad that you're in the house of the Lord today, are you? I, I'm, just, I'm just glad. I'm just holding my wife's hand, thanking the Lord that I'm in the house of the Lord, that I'm singing praise to him, that there's joy in my heart, that there's a love for you and for each other, that God's doing a work in our midst. I, that's something of the living water, isn't it, that Christ gives through the Holy Spirit that draws us to a vertical relationship with him and then draws us to himself. And so he offered her this living water. He offered her salvation, but look at her confusion. She's a little bit like Nicodemus. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. And then she says, or have to come here to draw water. She fails to understand the living water that Jesus so graciously offered her. She is in need of salvation. And then the question might be asked, is what exactly did our Lord do to turn her into a worshiper? Let me take you through these four lenses of worship. The first is what just simply call the preparation for worship. 
the preparation for worship. Look at the text in verse 16. Remember, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. He begins to prepare her hearts. He begins to, does he not, gently expose her sin. He begins to bang on her guilt just a little bit and on her despair, on, on her need for the Savior. I mean, think about it, beloved. He is sitting at the well and she is talking to God in the flesh. And he's beginning to draw her out. He's beginning to prepare her hearts. And the thirst for living water needs to be awakened by the consciousness of her own sin. She must come face to face with her sin. She must come face to face with God's holiness and judgment upon sin. We know this to be true, beloved, that salvation always includes repentance or it isn't the gospel at all. And so whenever you read in the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul, when he's standing before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 19, he says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared, and here was his gospel, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That was his gospel. He preached that men and women should repent and turn to God, performing deeds that show forth the truth of that repentance. I love it when Paul said to the church at Thessalonica in 1.9, he was commending them and he said, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And so here is the Lord with this woman asking about her husband. He's beginning, if you will, to prepare his heart. He was giving this woman an opportunity to come clean. He was giving the Samaritan woman an opportunity to confess her sin to be forgiven. But you'll note what she says to him. Look at verse 17. She says, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Now, you can just stop there. I mean, she's not lying, I I suppose. But all at the same time, she's not telling the truth, um, is she? And then the reply of our Lord must have been humanly, uh, boy, just devastating. Look at the text. Jesus said to her in verse 17, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband what you have said is true. He who knew all of the hearts, according to John chapter 2, was staring inside her heart. I mean, imagine she just goes to get water and Jesus looks at her, okay? He's preparing her heart, is he not? And he said, you have rightly said, you have no husband. I mean, how would he know that? You have five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. And so the woman, interesting response. What do you think about it? Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, which is interesting. It's translated, sir. It's curios. It it also means Lord, but it's fair in the ESV to call it sir. He says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay. Now, what do you think about that? There are some people who are writing scholars who write and say, that what this woman does after Jesus exposed her sin 
is, uh, some, one guy even said it, she throws out a red herring or, you know, like a, she, in other words, she throws out a, a smoke signal. She wants to get Jesus off his track, if, off her track. She's, he's talking about her sin, so he, sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. And so they say that she is kind of switching the conversation on the Lord. It's getting a little bit hot at that well, and her sin is being exposed and so forth. I, I don't really think that. I, I think what she was saying is, sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. The, the time in which this was written, a prophet was thought to have special insight into difficult circumstances, into difficult trials. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus was having his feet washed by a woman there, you remember that, the Pharisees sarcastically responded to Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So it's interesting. In other words, if Jesus had real insight... If he was really a prophet, he would have known who that woman was. Do you remember later, we'll get there, in John chapter 19, when the religious leaders asked the blind man, when they said, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And the blind man said in John 9, 17, he is a prophet. And so a prophet was thought highly of. A prophet had rare gifts. And I think it could very well be that his supernatural knowledge of her marital condition, far from creating a smokescreen, was a legitimate expression of a prophet that was right before her at the well. She didn't know. I mean, who is she to worship? Where is she to worship? How is she to worship? I mean, she had her sin exposed in this first lens and our Lord is preparing her for a life of worship. So look what she says in verse 20 of chapter 4. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so I take you to the second lens, your place of worship. She begins to go into this, and you've seen this before in your Bible reading. You say it's here. Our people say it's here. You say it's in Jerusalem. We, the Samaritan people, say that it's on Mount Gerizim. Now, it's interesting. When you look in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5, there God said to seek the place that the Lord God would choose from among all the tribes to put his name there for a dwelling. He told the people of Israel to find this place where he would put his name. And I think it's interesting, like when you see Mount Gerizim here, it was a site, at least according to Deuteronomy 11, verse 29, Deuteronomy 27, verse 12, where the Israelites proclaimed a blessing on Mount Gerizim, okay? In fact, the Samaritan people held that many significant events took place during the patriarchal period that were associated with Mount Gerizim. In fact, there was a man, I mentioned him a couple weeks back, Hyrcanus, a Jewish man, who destroyed the temple of Mount Gerizim 
But the Samaritans continued to perform sacrifices on that mountain, even though it was destroyed. I think it was around 126 BC. But listen, I tell you this. If you were in Israel today, at Passover, there's still a small band of people called the Samaritans, and they will sacrifice an animal on the Passover. I've had people who've witnessed it. They still do it today. Small group of people called the Samaritans. So this woman, after having her sin exposed, wants to know where's the place to worship. I don't think she's trying to throw them off on a smoke screen. I think in some ways she thought, who is this? It's a prophet. And in fact, if my sin is being exposed, what do I do with it? Where do I worship? Now, look what she says in verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say, well, who she's talking about? Well, remember, these are what some people called half-breeds. I don't know if that's, they're, they're a mixed race of people. The Samaritans are part Jewish. And when she says our fathers, she's referring to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 in verse 7. That in the place called Shechem, he built an altar there. And Shechem is right at the base of Mount Gerizim. Jacob in Genesis 33:20 also built an altar there. So listen, she, she's confused. Will you help me if you're a prophet? I mean, the Jews, on the other hand, you know, believed that it was in Jerusalem. You can see that in other places in 1 Kings 14, 21, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 6, Psalm 48, 2 Samuel 7. It was in Jerusalem. And so she's asking Jesus, this man whom she doesn't know, who is right? Now, listen, all of this, when I just listed those verses, I forgot to tell you this. 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles 6, 2 Samuel. Remember, the Samaritans never recognized that. All they went by was the first five books of the Bible. All they subscribed to as authoritative was the books we call the Pentateuch. You get past the Pentateuch, they never recognized them as authoritative. And so they just took Gerizim as the place to worship. And that's where we worship. Abraham worshiped there. Jacob worshiped there. But you Jews, you say that it's in the place of Jerusalem. And so there were competing religious claims that the Samaritan woman was inviting Jesus to address. I think Hughes, the commentator, put it this way. She was asking a question that was the result of her her dawning perception of who he was and of her sin and the knowledge that something needed to be done about it. I mean, I think she was evidently saying to herself, I am a sinner. I must bring an offering to God. But where do I take it? To her, the cure was sacrifice. But where was this sacrifice to be made? I mean, she was concerned about what God desired from her, and her answer was worship. Now, Peter just got up just a few moments ago, and he talked about that door. I mean, you can understand, just I think I've mentioned this to you before, 20 million people will descend upon Rome. And all you have to do is walk through this door, and for that moment, in that time, you have every sin forgiven, past, present, up until that point. Now, if you go out, you might need to come back later in the year and be forgiven again. But there are people who want to be relieved of their guilt. They want to be relieved of that burden. This woman, I believe, was one of them. But where do I go, she's asking. Where to worship? Now, look what Jesus said to her in 421. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He responds to this woman 
with three very direct statements, okay? First, just by way of subpoint, the place of worship is irrelevant, okay? In other words, you can see it there in the text. He says there, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The place of worship is irrelevant. Both mountains would become obsolete, would they not? In the destruction, both temples would, in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He tells this woman, listen, you're wondering about the place. And Jesus actually gently corrects her and says it's irrelevant. In fact, when you begin to pick out the history of the nation of Israel, not only was Jerusalem destroyed and the temple destroyed in 70 AD, but the Romans took a group of people up to Mount Gerizim and slaughtered the Samaritan people in 70 AD. But there could be more than that. Look look what he says there. He says in verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming. And usually when the hour is spoken about, you well know that that hour that is spoken of there is Christ's death. In other words, his hour that is upon him. And it spoke in the scriptures of his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. It kind of captures all. All of those. And when that happens, when his death occurs, when his resurrection occurs, when his ascension into glory occurs, there's a new phase of worship. In other words, he's the new sacrificial lamb, according to 129. He will be the new temple, according to John 2, 19 through 21. He preached, did he not, of the new birth in John 3. He spoke to this woman about the new water in 4.11. Soon worship will no longer, it no longer is going to be centered at Gerizim. It's no longer going to be centered at Jerusalem or what is known as Mount Zion. The new covenant that Christ will bring will render all ceremonies and all rituals obsolete. I mean, even think of the places today. I mean, it's fine. We were there a year ago at the church of the holy sepulcher, right? Okay, I was there and it's a bunch of stuff that you have to kind of look over and look past. They've kind of made it a shrine, but I don't think being at the church of the holy sepulcher was some kind of internal feeling that I had. But you understand that the place is not the most important thing. The place of worship is irrelevant because really what's going to matter is he'll describe that for us. But then look what he said to her, very gently, but also honestly. Verse 22, he said, you worship what you do not, what? No. So he says, not only is your worship irrelevant, but your pursuit of worship is inadequate. Inadequate. And I'm not trying to, to, to be like Jesus is just rebuking this woman. But he basically said, your pursuit of worship is inadequate. In other words, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you got part of it right in the Pentateuch. I believe they were looking for the prophet to come in Deuteronomy 18. That's in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But that's all they believed. And so they had an inadequate understanding of God's plan. They had an inadequate understanding of theology. Their theology, if you will, was truncated. They rejected, beloved, just understand this, the prophets, fair, They rejected the Psalms. They rejected the historical books. They were limited. We're not talking about a robust theology here. So your worship at Gerizim 
is inadequate, how utterly honest he is. But then note thirdly here, he, he recognizes the path of worship as the Jews. Look what he said there. He said in 22, you worship what you do not know. Then he said, we, speaking to the Jewish people, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, beloved, we know that the path of God's revelation of salvation came from the Jews. You don't have to turn there, but you remember when Paul said it this way in Romans 3, 2, that the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God, were they not? In other words, you're holding in your hand a Bible that came through the Jews primarily first, and then it came to the Gentiles, but those Jewish people were entrusted, Romans 3, 2, with the oracles of God. In fact, Paul said in Romans 9, 4, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, worship, promises, to them the patriarchs. And then he said in Romans 9, 5, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Very well said by Paul. It came, did it not, through the Jewish people first, and then it would go to the whole world. It was from the Jewish people that Messiah came. Now, that's not to say that all Jewish people are saved. It does not overlook their present and past apostasy. You know that. But salvation came through the promised Messiah as foretold in the Old Testament. But look what Jesus says to her now in verse 23. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Let me take you to the third lens. He lays out the principles of how to worship. The principles of worship. Now you'll note that he he says it a second time there in verse 23. He mentioned it before in 21. But he said, but the hour is coming. In other words, his death is coming. His resurrection is coming. His ascension is coming. That hour is going to come when salvation will be complete. And when that hour comes, and I think he just puts it in this phrase, it's now here, true worshipers will not be identified, you understand, by a location, but by their worship of God the Father in spirit and in truth. Now look what he says there in 23. He says true worshipers will worship the Father. In other words... Worship then, don't miss this, is built off and predicated on an accurate knowledge of the God who revealed himself in his word. There's a lot of people who worship today, but they're not worshiping the God that has been revealed in the scripture, in truth, and by the spirit of God. So we worship God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the text again. It's a fascinating account. He says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, he says, 
and truth. Now, take first the Spirit. This does not refer uh, to the Holy Spirit, okay? He's going to seek those in the next verse, but he says here, they worship the Father in spirit. He's talking here either one of two things. In reference to God as a spiritual being, if you will, rather than a physical place or physical being, because God is spirit. The Jewish people were not to make idols as other nations did. And Jesus' point here is this, that God is spirit. God is not flesh. True worship then is spiritual, not because it's in a physical location such as Jerusalem or Gerizim. He says there that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. But look at verse 24. He says there, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, mark that down. It's a huge theological statement that God is spirit. In other words, beloved, we're we're holding the word of God, and the word of God is written. And the word of God is telling us of his own character that he is a spirit being. In other words, God the Father does not have flesh and bones. You know that. He is not a stone. He is not a tree. He is not a mountain. He is not the sun as all the other false teachings are. He is spirit. And as such, he's not confined to one location. In other words, just as God is light, 1 John 1, 5, and just as God is love, 1 John 4, 8, God also is spirit. He's not material. He's not bound, if you will, to places or things. So if she wants to know where to worship, she's got it wrong. God is a spirit. You can't confine him to a location or to just a place. And this is the teaching of Scripture. He is spirit. God is invisible. He is not flesh and blood. Colossians says in 1.15, speaking of Christ, that he is the image of the what? The invisible God. In other words, he doesn't have flesh and bones again, if you will. First Kings in 1.17, it says to the king of ages, immortal, what? Invisible, okay? God only wise. He's invisible. It says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that he dwells, speaking of God, in unapproachable light who no one has ever seen or can see. You can't see God. He's a spirit. He's not flesh and blood. In fact, look back at John 1.18. I love this text. Maybe one of the greatest statements in all of the New Testament here, John the Apostle says in 1.18, no one has ever, what, seen God. He said, the only God. But then he said, but the one who is at the Father's side, he has made him, what, known. And so Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, he, Christ, has made the Father known. He said to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. So God the Father is spirit, but Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, has revealed God to us. Now, here he's talking about worshiping the Father 
through Christ. It's very important for us, okay, because I was reading this week from a resource that described the character of God in Mormonism, okay? If people say, ah, there's just many paths to God. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's one, and the Bible's very explicit on who God is, explicit on who Christ is, and what we teach matters. But these are essentially from Mormon writings. Listen to what they believe. God the Father, quote, was once a finite mortal on another planet. After his death and resurrection, he progressed to become the God of this planet. God in their teaching is an exalted man, and as we can become exalted men. God has a tangible body of flesh and bones. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinctly different beings who can only be at one place at a time. God the Father is under the jurisdiction of a higher God who has multiple gods above him. God lives on his own planet near the star Kolob. There is a heavenly mother as well as a heavenly father. They are heavenly parents. We humans were born as spirit beings to heavenly father and heavenly mother in a pre-mortal state and raised from infant spirits to adult spirits prior to our mortal births on earth. It's just heresy. So when we come to a text of scripture and the scripture is telling us God is spirits and you worship him in spirit and truth, I'll explain it in a moment. You understand, we've got to get God right. In fact, you know, and I'll keep reading, quote, Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. They, along with millions of other spirit children, were born to our heavenly father and our heavenly mother. Heavenly father, as a resurrected physical being, had sexual relationships with Mary, literally to procreate Jesus. Man has the ability to become God and rule his own planet, produce spirit children as a heavenly father did. Sex is an internal privilege for good Mormons who attain Godhead in order for them to procreate their spirit children to populate their own world, their own planet, as God did. Quote, polygamy will be the norm in the celestial kingdom, end of quotes. Listen, these are just lies. And I would say to us, if you fail to present God accurately, you have just made an idol. In fact, one said that idolatry at its very core is a wrong conception of God. In fact, there has never been an idol fashioned by man's hands that did not first exist as an image in his mind. And every single failure to worship or failure in worship or in doctrine or in practice can be traced back to wrong and ignoble thoughts about God. And so here Jesus says to her, you understand, look at it again, God is spirit, okay? And, and, and he's not a spirit. There's no article in the Greek. He is spirit, okay? There's, he's not a manifestation of many spirits. He's spirit. He's not flesh and bones. And look at verse 24. Those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. Now, he said we're here to worship in spirit. Now, again, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. 
he's, he's talking about worshiping in spirit, not the Holy Spirit. He's talking about as you come into worship, you worship in your human spirit. You worship from inside, from your heart. So listen, as we come in to sing, and you know what? I think we experienced a little bit of that today. When we come into this place, I I can just, there's a joy in this place. There's a joy that emanates out of you. I sit in the front row, I can hear you sing, and all worship, if you will, of our great God ought to not be bound up with a physical location, or a physical place, it's bound up in spirit. It's what takes place inside our heart. That is why Amos the prophet said in 521, I hate, what it says, I despise your feast and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. They're just going through the motions. And as they went through the motions, they thought they were pleasing God. And here Jesus says now in John 44, 24, those who worship me, must worship in spirit. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 17? He was quoting from Isaiah 29. Here's what Jesus said. He said in 15:7, you hypocrites. He said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me from their lips, but their what? Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Listen, beloved, listen, Grace Church of the Valley, when we come in, God's not even concerned necessarily with how you look. He's concerned mostly not with our externals. He's concerned with what goes on in our heart, in our spirit. It's not a location. It's not even the little theater in which we're in here. Worship is something that takes place internally. Listen, beloved, at the death of Christ, when that veil was torn from top to bottom, that was the symbol of the end of the entire Old Testament system of external, ceremonial, uh, uh, symbolic worship. And at that moment when Christ died, there were no more temples where God was to be found. There was no more priesthood to be seen. There were no more altars that needed to be regulated. There were no more sacrifice. There was to be no more incense, no more candles, and all that other stuff that you find today. Listen, our worship, your worship, needs to be internal. When you get up, we ought to be praying, Lord, bless our worship every day. Every day is to be a day of worship. So true worship, beloved, as Jesus told this woman, is a matter of your heart before God. It is an inward attitude of a right heart, and that is to be placed alongside, look again in the text, it's to be placed alongside of what? Truth. What's that? Obviously, it's God's word. Sanctify them, he will say later in 17.7, in the truth, your word is truth. And so when you come to worship, you come with an internal heart ready to hear from God. And then secondly, worship is God's word revealed to us. So regardless of what we think, regardless of what we feel, there is no authentic worship of God without a right knowledge of God. And so here as he walks through this woman, he prepares her, does he not? He prepares her for repentance. He adjusts the place of worship. It's more than just a place you go to. He begins to give the principles of worship. It's in spirit and truth. And finally, and this leads to the most important of all, he gets to the person to worship. 
Look what the woman said to him. She said, I know that Messiah is coming. So it just stopped there. How'd she know that? Well, she's a Samaritan. They believed in Deuteronomy 18. In fact, they believed that a prophet would come. They called him the Teheb, okay? And they believed they were waiting for that prophet. And when that prophet came, look at verse 25. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She was waiting for that Messiah. And now the ultimate moment arrives. This is monumental. It is what is the disclosure of the identity of who Jesus Christ was. It's the climactic point in the account. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, imagine that moment. I who speak to you am what? Am he. What a bold declaration. You know, it's interesting. He didn't veil it, did he? I suppose he's not in Galilee. He's in Samaria. And maybe he didn't have to clothe who he was for fear of a revolt. These are the Samaritan people. And he comes out as one of the one unique places in all of the gospel early on where he just comes out and says, I am he. I mean, the one who sat by the well and asked her for a drink was none other than the promised Messiah, the one who can provide her with the living water. You know, what's interesting here. And the language, okay, you're reading that and it's fine. I'm reading it. I who speak to you am he. But in the Greek language, it's just ego, I, me. In other words, he doesn't say I am he. Jesus said to her, and I think you'll get the association. He just said, I am is what he said. In other words, we might render this, I who speak to you, I am. And that, of course was the answer given to Moses at the burning bush when he asked God to give his name and God said to Moses, do you remember? I am who I what am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It is the name for Jehovah. It is the name for Yahweh. And it means I am. And it signifies God's eternal self-existent being. And so the voice that Moses heard from the bush, this woman now heard from Jesus. And with it came the unveiling of his divine deity. Listen, he is the only solution to her problems. The only way for all of her fears and doubts and the only way for her forgiveness of sins. And so I just ask you this morning, have you ever placed your faith in the Messiah? Have you come to the one who offers the living water? Have you come to the one who is the great I am? That's the revelation of Christ to this woman. And she needed to hear that message indeed. Listen, that's who he is. And I pray that we could ever worship him in spirit and in truth. We'll pick it up next week.